This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Leila Alamar, author of the novel Silence is a Sense. You know, you're born into a family, into a clan or a tribe or a society, and and everything that happens to you and everything that you conceive of starts from that point, from that idea that you are part of a whole. You are not a standalone unit. We'll be back with Leila Alamar in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January, embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Leila Alamar, who is a Kuwaiti writer and academic currently living in London. Her novel, The Pact We Made, was longlisted for the Authors Club Best First Novel Award. She is pursuing her PhD on the intersection of Arab women's fiction and literary trauma theory. Her new novel, Silence is a Sense, tells the story of a young mute woman who is a Syrian refugee living in London. She is a writer and a voyeur. She spends her time spying through the windows of her neighbors' apartments. Traumatized by her war-torn homeland and the journey to London, she exists as an outsider in England and those around her. She writes for a magazine under the pseudonym The Voiceless, where she tries to explain the refugee experience without re-traumatizing herself, while her editor seeks to craft her experiences into something more sellable to the readers. At the same time, hate crimes are escalating at the nearby mosque, and the voiceless narrator has to decide how long she can be an observer. We began the discussion with Leila Alamar talking about her PhD work. 
I decided to focus on Arab women's fiction because um, of my own personal circumstances. So, you know, being an Arab woman writing fiction, uh, I wanted to focus my scholarly work in that arena as well. And I've been reading Arab literature for a long time, you know, since, since my early 20s at least. And when I started conceiving of a PhD project or an idea of of what I might look at. Um, I've always also been interested in trauma. I've always been interested in the psychology of it, of recovery, of how we represent trauma, uh, what are the ethics of that representation. And, and that's always been a, um, a theme in my creative work. So my first novel, The Pack We Made, uh, also had trauma at its core, uh, albeit in a different way. So, so I've always been interested in that. And when I was looking at literary trauma theory as a possible field, uh, you know, it's it's striking how there's been com- almost complete and total neglect of Arab literature um, being studied or looked at through that lens. I mean, I think it, there's only maybe one scholar, a fellow Arab woman, uh, Hanadi Saman, who looked at literature at Arab literature as trauma or as trauma narratives and so that seemed to me a a pretty um, clear avenue to to explore so that's that's where I decided to direct my attention. What do you think is in you that you experienced maybe in in your own life either something that touched you deeply or deep sense of empathy that that draws you to trauma? Um, you know, I think it's just something that at the beginning it started as an intellectual curiosity that, you know, I've always been a reader, a a very big reader, and I've always read quite widely. So, um, both fiction and nonfiction and this idea of, of trauma and how we process it and how it impacts the mind, how it impacts memory, how it impacts narrative. Uh, how we quote unquote speak of trauma. These are things that I've always been deeply fascinated by and deeply interested in. And, you know, when it comes to Arab literature, the trauma that's depicted there is so complex and so intersectional. You know, it's, it's personal and it's political. It's to do with gender relations and it's to do with, with, your sense of self and the cohesion of of the self and identity uh it's individual in nature you know very personal at times quite eccentric but it can also be collective and and very large scale and attached to historical uh traumas and so this kind of um morass of of uh of traumatic memory and traumatic experience is something that really really interested it interested me and i really wanted to 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 pull that apart and to try and unpack it and and untangle those threads and see where it goes at the heart of silence is a sense is is your main character who is who is voiceless and and nameless throughout the whole novel until the end and you know we're talking about trauma she is living in the aftermath of trauma and Mm -hmm. I think you know traumatic incidences can be 
short lived or long lived. Like, I mean, you could endure abuse and pain for years and years, but then, Mm -hmm. um, or it can be, you know, more, more compressed. And then you have your life after. And so when you were formulating this woman who is at the heart of your story, and we can talk a little bit about what she experienced, how did you think about, you know, writing her on the page? What qualities did you want her to have? How did you find the voice of the voiceless? Mm. Um, You know, I wanted her to be a real person. And in order for her to be a real person, she has to embody all of the complexities and contradictions and streaks, uh, strengths and weaknesses of, of a real actual person. And, and she had to have that wealth of experience and perspective and um, cultural slash historical specificity that makes us who we are and that makes us real, quote unquote, human beings. And so everything that she experiences in the present day narrative when she's, you know, she's now been resettled in this English city, but she's, she's carting, almost dragging all of this pain and trauma behind her into this present day setting. And, and, you know, I, what I wanted to kind of have the novel be in dialogue with is this Western concept of the self and the Western concept of trauma, which all goes back to Freud. You know, it all goes back to Freud. And and his formulation of trauma in itself is very individualistic. It's, it's quite apolitical. You know, it, it doesn't really take uh, stock of political, social, historical context behind that trauma. Um, he sees it as as an event which is bracketed in time, as you said, you know, the trauma happened and it's over and now we move on. But that's not a conception of trauma that we can apply indiscriminately around the world. And, and what I wanted, you know, one of the, the central struggles of this, of this story is, is her, the protagonist batting up against this concept wherever she goes. So, you know, when refugees arrive uh, at the at asylum offices, they undergo these mental health evaluations, which are very Western in their framework and in their assessment, and require the re- the refugee to be able to lay out the critical timeline of what happened to them and spell out all of their many varied traumas that have. That, that could be very chronic, extremely chronic, and have been going on for years and encompass, as I say, political factors, personal factors, sexual traumas, you know, just this incredible array. Um, and yet there's this expectation of being able to lay it out very cleanly in a very sterile timeline uh, so that you can move on from it. And that's also a struggle that she has with with her editor because she writes for an online magazine in in you know in England, and her editor has an, a concept of how trauma should be narrated and how her story ought to be told, and so the protagonist bumps up against that as well. Is these different parameters which don't match what. Uh, feels organic to her and and her experiences. 
So let's talk a little bit about her. So your main character is voiceless. That's the 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 namaker she uses when she writes and she doesn't speak. Many people Ooh. around her think she's deaf. She lives in like these towers. I envision them sort of with a courtyard in the middle so she can see like they're almost like in a square and so she can see through the windows of other buildings. So she's she's a voyeur. She looks mm-hmm. and makes up stories about people she sees in other windows. Uh, she's very intelligent and intellectual. She is a reader. She's literary. And she goes back and forth between what she's seeing in front of her and her past. She's she's from Syria and she left and had a pretty harrowing journey to get to England. And then in the modern day world of her life, there is a mosque nearby, an imam who is trying to welcome in the community, but there's hate going on. And so... Mm-hmm. That's that's the context you put it in. Do you want to say anything more about that or, or how you tried to formulate the plot to investigate these ideas and, and why she didn't speak? I mean, you know, for me, writing starts with a voice and it starts with character. And I don't I don't plan my novels and I don't go into the writing process thinking, you know, right, I'm going to write about these topics. You know, that's that's not how it happens for me. I I was was in Edinburgh in the summer of 2017 and I was living in a in an apartment complex and I was looking out the window and I could see into the apartments of my neighbors uh you know and I could see them making tea and watching television and typing on their laptops and and the voice of this protagonist came to me one day when I was just standing at the window and she she was narrating some of what we were seeing, but also imagining other characters. So, you know, she gives the characters in the novel these these simple monikers, you know, like No Lights Man and Anime Girl and um, The Juicer. And, and so the voice in my head started creating this these characters and this kind of monologue kicked up. And, and so I just, I just wrote it down and I just followed it along. And and then, you know, you start asking yourself questions. You start saying, well, why is she standing at the window watching her neighbors? And I thought, okay, she's isolated. She's disconnected from her community. And then I think, well, why is she isolated? Why is she disconnected? And I thought, well, she doesn't speak. She's mute. Okay, well, why is she mute? And, you know, the, the questions just keep coming to me. Why, why, why? And, and as I followed them along and I kept writing, it, it became clear to me that that she was a, a young woman, a young Syrian refugee who had, you know, made her way across Europe um, and was in this community that she felt that, that she was still carrying within her that sense of not being safe and that sense of precarity that she had both both back home in Syria, which had descended into civil war after um, the failure of the Arab Spring uprisings, uh, and also on her way across across Europe, she 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 endured years of a profound feeling of not being safe. And so it seemed natural to me that she would cloister herself in her flat um, and and she would confine herself there in order to feel safe, and that she might also, intentionally disconnect herself from other people and be resistant 
to to make those connections, whether with the people in her flats or in the flat complex, or as you say, uh, in the Muslim community in the city, that she would be resistant to any form of connection because she thinks that if she forms a connection with someone, she might lose them and she might feel that pain and, and sorrow all over again. And so it's all about self-preservation and protecting herself. I wrote in my notes at the, at the heart of this book, I felt the central question, although there are, can be several, is what is safety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 one of the you know one of the the pivotal realizations she has is that she isn't really safe anywhere, and that she thought that by being in England, she would be safe. Um, you know, because bombs don't fall from the sky, and there are no snipers in the street, uh, like like she came from, like the place that she came from. Um, but then she she confronts this violence that's simmering in the city itself, and she comes to that realization that nowhere is completely safe, and she needs to come to terms with that in some way. Yeah, it's kind of like this insidious violence, because in Syria, what you see is what you get. Like, there's war on the streets, and, and everyone knows it. But in England, it's like people who, maybe in the cover of night do hate crimes or in the confines of their own home abuse their spouse it's it's Mm -hmm. all danger but it's it's almost like in a way I don't want to say it's more sinister because I don't want to compare them but it's it's like the evil it's like more hidden or something I think it's it's a different kind it's it's on a different scale than than what she anticipated perhaps I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to compare them either, but it's it, it's it just opens her eyes to the realization that it it wasn't, the, or that it wouldn't be as simple as she thought it was would be that that she thought she would just get there and everything would be fine, uh, and then she comes to the realization that no, uh, in fact, there is danger everywhere. Did writing her as someone who was mute make anything more complicated in in the structure? I mean, it is told from first person, and so you're in her head, so in some levels it doesn't matter, but I'm wondering if it complicated the fiction at all. It was a challenge. Um, I, you know, you're right that the fact that it is in first person narration means that you can get away with a lot and you can communicate a lot to the reader just by virtue of being in her head. But, you know, as we move through the novel, she does come to realize that she can't remain isolated and she can't remain disconnected and that human beings are social animals at the end of the day and we need community we need people around us and and she does begin to venture out of her apartment and form connections with the people in the apartment complex some of them um, as well as across the city on a more uh, wider scale and so uh, creating those moments of connection and those moments of communication was a challenge because she, d- she doesn't speak. And so I had to find other ways for her uh, to, to relate or to connect with other people like, um, like Adam, who lives across the way and, and becomes a friend of hers, or, or Chloe, this, this young girl who also lives across the way. You know, so that was a challenge of how to get them to communicate in a real way and and to form a kind of intimacy even though she wasn't speaking one of the things that the book 
investigates is this idea you were talking about with her editor where her editor wants the story in a certain way. It's almost like refugee stories are a commodity and Mm -hmm. they have to be shaped and presented a certain way. And in the same way, I think there's stereotypes about Muslims and who they should be and what they believe in. And I'm wondering if you, Mm. can you talk about these and and maybe that's two separate questions. Yeah, no, I think that is the, that is a central struggle, struggle between the protagonist and her editor is this idea of truth versus narrative. And Josie, the editor, she wants a narrative. She, she comes from you know, she's an editor of this online magazine. Her her framework and her parameters for storytelling are quite specific. You know, she wants the reader to click on the link and read the article. And she knows what kind of assumptions readers have and what expectations they have. And her job is to cater to those expectations because that's that's how you you run a successful magazine. You don't you don't run a successful you know media enterprise by challenging people's expectations. You feed into them. That's how it works. Um, and so that's where her motivation comes from. I don't think it's it's necessarily malicious, but that's all she knows. And so she expects the protagonist to to be able to conform to that. The protagonist, on the other hand, uh, doesn't necessarily know the rules of this game. And uh, that's on the one hand, you know, and, and in order to, to convey her experiences, uh, she, she's, not in, she's not sure how to mold them into what Josie wants. And on the other hand, there's a sense where she doesn't even trust her own mind to make sense of these memories. She doesn't trust the memories themselves. And so she doesn't trust her mind with being able to construct a narrative that is clean and tidy and and has, you know, a beginning and a middle and an end and a resolution to it that that Josie and her readers can make sense of. The protagonist is trying to tell her truth and and truths are messy and complicated and in many ways unresolvable and so that's the struggle there is is who gets to dictate how a story is told is it the person giving the story or the person who's receiving it and and so the way that that i wrote um the protagonist is that i wanted her to be able to wrestle a little bit of of that power away from Josie and, and, and to ask the reader, you know, will you follow this protagonist and will you let her tell her story the way she wants to tell it versus the way you expect to receive it? I think that's so hard to those, those societal expectations, because while it is embodied in Josie, it's, she's not alone in terms of, I think what society expects. But when you do that, your act, actually in some level re-traumatizing someone to dictate how they should tell their story when you want to give them space to do that. And so you're asking them to do like double emotional work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it is re-traumatizing, I think. Uh, and, and, and certainly I think that is part of the protagonist's resistance 
as well to sharing everything is that she she wants to discuss you know the the experience that she's having uh, in England or on her journey there and she is resistant to drawing up these things from the past be- because of the effect that they may have on her memory was also a big a big part of of this novel your your narrator thinks a lot about memory, thinks about if she can trust it. Is it accurate? Can you talk mm-hmm. about that? Memory is something that I'm fascinated by on a personal level. You know, I have I have trouble recalling things from my childhood sometimes. And, and sometimes I think, well, did that episode actually happen? Or is that something that I think happened because I've heard the story so many times, I don't actually remember it. And, and that was something that I played around with with my first novel as well, is this, this idea of uh, how much can we trust our memories to serve as an accurate narrative or an accurate, accurate snapshots of our lives. And, you know, we, we think that memory is, is, is like a folder on a computer. You know, you have a folder there that's marked 2011, and if you just click on it, there are all your memories, you know, but that's not how it is. Every time you pull a memory out, you are effectively reconstructing that memory all over again. And you're reconstructing it from a new place, you know, from a new, a new time, a new um, age, you know, perhaps you've, you're, you're 10 years away from that memory or 20 years and you keep recreating it and reconstructing it. And in that process, you emphasize certain things. You may leave out other things. Um, the the color, the tenor of it will all change. And so if memory is a reconstruction of our lives and that memory is constantly being reconstructed, then are we just constantly reconstructing our lives? What? How much of it is actually true? You know, when when you experience trauma, that's an added layer of complexity because it completely ruptures that process. And that's, that's essentially what trauma is, is, is a rupture in the fabric of the mind. And, and it will necessarily have an impact on, on memory and your ability to, to cohere a sense of self around these memories after, before the trauma, during the trauma, all of this will have an impact on it. And so in silence is a sense that her, her mind is essentially this trauma scape, you know, and it's, it's kind of a shifting battleground of memories and nightmares and flashbacks, all of them revelatory in their own way, all of them illuminating these these anxieties and fears and experiences that that she she struggles to make sense of. Yeah, and I think it just leaves you with the question for people, especially who maybe are at arm's length from trauma or even further who read this, when you've gone through something like that, how do you possibly make sense of the world? How do you rectify that and just go on? Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the central questions, isn't it, of the novel? Is that she's she's now in this English city. She's she's left her family. She's left um, her country behind. She's she's trying to figure out a way to move on, a way to 
um, construct a sense of self, uh, a way to, you know, figure out who she is and who she wants to be in this, in these new circumstances that she finds herself in. And at the beginning, she resists, I think, she resists a lot. She resists her memories. She resists dealing with the traumas. As I said, she resists forming any new connections um, or, or, you know, participating in this community. And then as the narrative unfolds, she, she begins to come to terms, I think, with these, these truths. And, and, you know, I don't think it's really a question of rectifying. And I, I don't think that it's a question of putting the trauma behind you, whatever that means, and moving on from it. It's, it's more about finding a way to live with it and, and to have it be there, but not be so overwhelming that you can no longer function. And that's how she is at the beginning of the, the narrative. She, she's not functioning, really. And, you know, as we move through the story, I think she does find a way to to not overcome it, but to to be able to move on in spite of it. Because you're, you're studying trauma in literature, I'm wondering how everything you studied fit into this book and or if writing it made you realize new things, if you had any moments of, of awakening just actually doing it. Uh, I actually wrote the novel two years before I started my doctoral program. So, um, yeah, I mean, as I said, my, my scholarly work is, is more informed by my creative interests than the other way around. Um, certainly, as I, as I read deeper into literary trauma theory, I could see how it, was, how it had fit in with, with my narrative or, or how my narrative was trying to combat those ideas. Um, you know, like I said, of, of everything being Freudian based, being very individualistic, being very apolitical, uh, you know, I intuitively sensed that these things do not apply to someone coming from her background and from her historical socio-political context, because I am Arab and I grew up in an Arab society. And so, you know, I understand that the Arab individual is not constituted in the way that the West tends to think of the individual self. You know, we are communal. We are, we, we think of ourselves as parts of a whole. And, and that sense of self has to be the starting point for anything that comes after it, whether you're talking about trauma or memory or what have you. It all has to come from this, how is the self constituted, you know, and, and where I come from, the self is constituted in a different way. And so that necessarily informed this character and how she would see the world. And so, you know, now as I'm studying more and more into, into literary trauma theory, uh, I can see where those points of tension are and where those points of conflict are and how they impact the way we read uh, trauma narratives. You just mentioned that because you grew up Arab that your sense of self is different. 
I'm wondering if that's something you can explain at all and also like what it must feel like sometimes to have that duality inside of you since your mother is from Texas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mother is American, but uh, as I said, I grew up in Kuwait and I went to, you know, uh, government schools. Uh, all of my friends, family that I'm, that I'm close to is back in Kuwait. Um, you know, I've had, I've had, all of my friends are from around the Arab world, you know, Lebanese, Palestinian, Egyptian. So that's the kind of cultural context, I suppose, that I'm more at home in and that I'm more familiar with. And, you know, when it comes to your sense of self, it's as I said, we're, we are born and we grow up understanding that the the pure autonomous individual doesn't really exist in that sense in the Arab world. You know, you're born into a family, into a clan or a tribe or a society, and and everything that happens to you and everything that you conceive of starts from that point, from that idea that you are part of a whole. You are not a standalone unit. And and that idea is all pervasive and it's it's even embedded in our language and in the way that we speak you know so for example my my father his name is Jasim but nobody calls him Jasim they call him Abu Talal the father of Talal so the father of my brother um, so his his very sense of self is 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 constituted as this identity as being the father of someone uh, it's the same thing with my mom. Even though she's American, they call her Um Talal. She's the mother of Talal. If I go up to my aunt in Kuwait and I say, you know, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, she'll say, Min Binta, whose daughter is she? So there's this idea that it's not. she's not a person. She belongs to a family or he belongs to, uh, he's attributed as someone's father or someone's husband. Uh, and that that is is in our language and it's in our psyche, this idea that we are, we are parts of something larger than ourselves. And we carry that sense no matter where we go. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a positive thing, you know, and, and in the way that it, it brings a sense of community and belonging and togetherness. But of course, it also has negative connotations to it, um, especially when you're a woman, you know, in terms of of honor or shame or or the family's reputation things like that but it is a fundamental part of our personhood and it's a fundamental part of how we see ourselves and how we see our place in the world and it can be a a difficult thing to battle against you know especially if as you say you know i have an american mother or for for Arabs living in the diaspora, you know, who are influenced by by the countries that they're living in, or or who 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 believe themselves to want to have this autonomous, individualist sense of self, um, you're constantly batting batting up against, you know, the way that that we're born and the way that we're raised to see ourselves. And I think. The other battle is the cultural battle of how people see you. And I was asking you this earlier because it is something that 
I think is important to you that you expressed in the book that, you know, contrary to what many people think who don't know that much about the Muslim religion, they might think that you're all fundamentalist or you all believe one thing. And that is so far from the truth. And it's again, it's like so much work you have to do to to tell people about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, there are these single stories that people are are very familiar with and that they're very comfortable with, you know. Um, you know, these these stories about the Muslim woman as passive and a victim or, you know, the Muslim man as a as a tyrant or or as as you say like fundamentalist and and conservative and it's it's obviously not the case, and, and it doesn't take too much thinking to to realize that that can't possibly be the case. You know, it's, Islam is a religion like any other religion, and you have people who are observant and people who are non-observant, people who are progressive, people who are conservative. You know, it's it's a spectrum, just like any other class of people that you would find. It's it's. And when I say just like any other, I mean exactly like any other. There's literally nothing special uh, in that regard about Islam. And so, you know, the, the, the Muslim community that's portrayed in Silence of the Sense is a diverse one. And you can see different uh, attitudes in, in that community and in, in the figure of the Imam and the protagonist, even though she is a Muslim, um, as I said before, she doesn't rush to be embraced by this community, and she kind of resists it um, for a whole host of reasons. And the re- the reader is free to to come up with their own um, you know conclusions as to why she might resist that. Uh, to my mind, it's it's tied into this fear of of loss and fear of of grief, and not wanting to connect with anything that reminds her of the home that she left behind. So you were mentioning the imam and, you know, one of the through lines in the book is, is these efforts by, by him um, to welcome the community in, to, to have not even just dialogue about religion, but just dialogue. And what simmers below are these people that hate and mm-hmm. it kind of goes back to also this idea of safety where maybe you flee your country only to to die in the place that you feel safe and all of the efforts that he kept making to the community. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk about this element of the book at all. I mean, I think for, for me, the figure of, of the imam is um, a pragmatic one to a, to a large part. You know, he, he understands that they're in this, community and they need to to coexist peacefully with others you know and a lot of a lot of immigrants you know come from communities where where this kind of co-religious environment is very normal and and is not even worth commenting on and that they they do live side by side very peacefully with their neighbors Uh, and I think that that's an ethos that he's trying to bring um, into that city, but you know there are there are different there are different opinions there, and there are different um, experiences that exist in that community, but also in the city around it. And so uh, I wanted it to be a little bit of a, a realistic portrayal of of what 
kind of dynamics occur in in multi-ethnic diverse communities, you know? Yeah. One of the the lines that you have in there, and if you want to talk a little bit about her life in Syria before she came, um, feel free. She had a boyfriend there named Khalid, and at one point he said to her, no one is truly voiceless. Either they silence you or you are silence yourself. This was... He he kind of went off. She had a group of friends. He was in them, fa- friends and family who were dealing with the politics of Syria in different ways. And this was something he said to her when she was having some disagreements about him, but also mm-hmm. a line to me that that hinted at another theme or the, or the title or who she became. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It does reference the title, actually. Um, so the title of the novel Silence is a Sense comes from a 1968 poem by the Egyptian protest poet Ahmed Fuad Negin. And the poem is called Silence or Aslamt. It's originally written in, in Arabic, of course. And it was translated by Marilyn Booth. And in her translation, she says, mute, voiceless, quiet, mute. But our silence is a sense more eloquent than words. And those who've heard us know exactly what we say. And so this poem does a lot of different things. Uh, On the one hand, it is a critique of the regime. And as I say, this was in 1968. So it's uh, the Nasserite regime after the Six-Day War. Um, And it critiques the regime's practice of silencing its citizens. Uh, so that's quite a clear link, I think, with, with some of the protests that were happening during the Arab Spring. But there's also a self-critical gesture in the poem where Negim, the poet, is criticizing those who remain silent or who silence themselves, whether it's out of fear or whether they do it as a subversive gesture, uh, which he says eventually needs to stop and you need to actually speak. It doesn't do to remain silent. And so that's one of the the struggles that the protagonist has is that that question of, is she actually voiceless? Is it a question of her not being able to speak or, or being unwilling to speak? And that's something that she struggles with. So, so, um, the the title is self-critical in that way for her, and in particular with Khalid, with her love interest, because he is very politically engaged, and he does have a very um, uh, you know activist kind of ethos, and he's a student of Arab political history, and he knows the history of these revolutions, and he even schools her on Negum at one point. He he mentions the poet. To her, um, and so he he wants this action. He wants uh, this speaking out, whereas she is a little more reserved and a little more fearful, and and she worries. You know, one of one of the things that she worries about is that she was never brave enough for him, uh, and so that's where this idea of the voiceless and and the the title of the novel comes from. It's self-critical thing that she's she that she turns on herself one of the things she experiences once she's 
you know, just exploring the different areas of who she is in this new country. And she has boundaries for where she can go. And she pushes them a little bit as the, as the book goes on and she gains more confident and becomes closer to her neighbors, even if it's just through watching them and knowing their patterns more. But she does meet one of her neighbors named Adam, who's very idealistic. He's, he's very fascinated with the Vietnam war. He's very fascinated with protest. He's, he really has a good heart. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to make the world a better place, kind of one protest at a time. And he oh. really wants to bring her into his political activity. And she really has, at first, some issues like what, you know, your protest is so clean and nice, like compared to what she had experienced in mm-hmm. Syria. Can you talk about Adam and, and their relationship and his place in the novel? Yeah, you know, Adam was one that really surprised me. Uh, as I said, I don't, I don't plan out my novels. I don't do things like character sketches or, or decide on anything like that um, before going into it. I just, I just kind of draft and see where, where the thing takes me. And at the beginning, when I started writing Adam, I thought he was just going to be, you know, this, this comedic relief. You know, at certain points, he was this kind of, you know skeezy womanizer who lived across the way and that he wasn't going to be anything more than that really but as as I kept drafting and as they kept having interactions he became much more substantial and he is very uh you know civic minded and and he's an activist or he wants to be at least and he has you know, this sense of, um, of wanting to be a responsible global citizen and, and wanting to um, be vocal and, and be active in, in what he thinks is, is right in, in order to counter uh, the negative um, sentiments that, that, are, that are increasing in his, his society. Uh, so that, that was surprising to me. I, I didn't expect that to happen. And he ended up being quite pivotal to her character development and to her, her story. I, I think, you know, in, in many ways, he parallels Khaled back home, you know, in terms of his activism and his um, wanting to get out and do something. And that's, that's kind of something that Khaled always wanted to do. Um, back in Syria that he wanted to be out in the streets doing something and I think that Adam shares in that spirit and that's perhaps what draws her to him even if at the beginning it's it's unwilling she finds she finds something in him that is pure I think and something that someone that she could have a real connection with um, uh, even if, you know, at the beginning she's kind of dismissive of his efforts and, and thinks that they are very sanitized, very bureaucratic, you know, this, this idea of you go and you apply for a permit to protest and you go out and you do your protests and you go home and have dinner. Uh, and these are, not, these are not what the protests of the Arab Spring looked like. They, they, were, they were violent upheavals and, and um, you know, the response to them was certainly violent a lot of the time. But uh, she comes to she comes to appreciate him, I think, and she comes to value his place in her life and and his perspective and what he's trying to achieve. There's there's a line in there where she's reflecting on being silent, and she 
you write that silence makes you a really good listener. And I think mm. she became a really good listener with Adam and with the world around her because she wasn't speaking. Yeah, you know, people think that that's, that's where the title comes from, is this idea that because she is silent, it means that her other senses have been heightened. And, that she, and it's true, she does pick up on things that she might not otherwise have. And she is very hyper aware and perceptive of what's happening in the community around her. And also, you know, her neighbors, you know, uh, in realizing that she doesn't speak, they kind of assume that it means she doesn't hear. And so uh, they are perhaps, um, they say things that they might not otherwise have said uh, because they think that, you know, it's safe, that she can't hear that her, she can't hear them. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, silence, the silence does allow her to be more attuned to what's happening around her, I think. And it um, it allows her to be more perceptive and more receptive to, to what's happening and to the undercurrents that are swimming in this community and in this city. There's a point where you're questioning, what is your place in a nation and does your nation value you as an individual? I don't know if it's so much about what your place is and whether the nation values that. I think that she, the protagonist is quite anti-nationalist and she doesn't she she sees the the dangers of this nationalist thinking that has taken over the globe, you know, in the last couple of decades all over. I mean, it's not something that's specific to um, the UK or the US, for example, it, it really is all across the board. And I think that she understands the danger in that kind of thinking and in that kind of, of, of consciousness and in tying yourself so strongly to this one identity marker and saying that, you know, this makes up the totality of who you are. It's a dangerous thing. And, and you know, as well, you know, just by virtue, I think of being a refugee and crossing all of these borders in Europe, I think it would be quite natural to come to loathe the very idea of borders when you're subject to that kind of objectification, you know, and, and crossing borders, the human becomes a, a biopolitical tool. You know, when you think about your experiences at borders, even if they're quite benign experiences, you know, even if you're just coming through customs, you're standing there while someone checks over your documents, you're standing there while someone decides whether you are allowed to be in this country. Um, you know, and, and, and that whole process can be very reductive. And for her to travel across a continent that way, constantly being pushed back, constant being, constantly being told that they don't belong, that you need to somehow prove that you belong somewhere or that you should be allowed to stay. All of these are dehumanizing behaviors. And, and you know, this idea of the nation in itself is exclusionary. You know, built into the idea is that some people belong and some people don't. And why? Because of arbitrary lines drawn in the sand? You know, the very idea, I think, doesn't make sense to her. And she, she, she is quite resistant to it. 
Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, so the passage that I've chosen is from a novel called The Open Door by an Egyptian writer, uh, Latifa Zayat. And this novel was originally published in 1960 in Arabic, and it was translated in 2000, so 40 years later, uh, by Marilyn Booth, actually, who incidentally is the one who who translated that poem that I mentioned earlier. She's a a very well-known translator. And The Open Door chronicles Egypt during the 50s, and this was a time of youthful activism, of anti-imperial spirit, of optimism for the future of this newly independent country of Egypt. And so um, the portion that I'm going to read provides a really what I think is a beautiful metaphor for the struggle between youthful exuberance on the one hand and sedimented wisdom on the other. So, so in a sense, those who would rush forward versus those who might counsel patients. Um, and I think that that has resonances with the Arab Springs of the last decade, of the last 10 years. Um, you know, this kind of, of rushing forth and the impediments that might be in the way of that. So I'll just read this short passage. It rushes forth, a clear bubbling spring. The bogs, though, have done their best to block its passage. Intent on sucking that lovely running water dry, they try to absorb it into themselves, to consume it completely, to transform it with their sluggishness into a stagnant pond. The spring is still young, nevertheless, buoyant with life, excitable and deep. And the bogs are ancient, sedimented over their many years of existence, crouching in quiet defiance across the land of Egypt. Confident that their stagnation speaks of calm strength, the dark green surfaces glint under the sun's rays. But beneath that glittering surface lies the swirled mud, ready to dam the spring's flow. The bubbling water slowly carves a bed from the resistant mud, losing some of its crystal swells to the voracious throat of the sodden earth, but pounding on, roiling, alive, molding its destination. Yet there, at the end of the way, sits a dam of solid rock. The bog lies in sure weight, chiding the stream. There's nothing to be gained by pushing on, young friend. No use in rushing ahead. The stagnant stillness of those glinting patches speaks for itself. Quietude is partner to good judgment. The brackish surface glistens, the bogs wink beneath the rays of the sun. You said um, you did explain it, but is there anything else you want to say? No, I mean, I think think that pretty much covers it. You know, this idea of old versus new uh, and youthful exuberance is, is something that I think uh, speaks to us even now, uh, what, 60 years on from that novel. Can you read something you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to read a little bit from about halfway through the book, a little more than halfway uh, through through the novel. And it's after this unbearable loss has struck the, the protagonist's family. And it's when she has, she has really decided to leave, that the time has come for her to leave them. Uh, and, and she's unable to bear the, the claustrophobic nature of the house um, in the midst of this unimaginable war that's raging outside, but also this very personal tragedy that they've suffered as a family, and, and she decides that she has to leave. And so, you know, I was struggling with how to represent that, uh, that moment, that break, uh, that rupture in the family, and I didn't want it to be this this very dramatic scene, but I didn't want to omit it entirely. So I was trying to find some compromise uh, between those. And so um, this is this is the passage. it's it's the the last moments, uh, her last moments in the house. Melikil Mote no longer hovers outside to converse with the jinn who dangle from streetlights and swat at pedestrians. They dwell in the house now, here with us. Crouched in corners where they sharpen their teeth or curled on our chests at night when sleep is elusive. Hungry, vicious, they hiss and lick at our hearts. They pluck at the strings. We flinch and pace and kneel, and death, that horrid deliverance, perches on Mama's shoulder, bending her low and whispering in her ear all the things she'll never be able to unsee, to unhear, to unknow. There's no air here, no expanse for the lungs, no repose, no refuge for the mind, and our souls flutter, aimless, like birds in a cage. Gripping the handle to the front door, two hours before the dawn call to prayer, I hear her behind me. The shuffle of wrinkled kaftan and restless feet, the sigh, the wet tut of her tongue. Mama. Her eyes are vacant, empty wells. There's no expression on her face because there's nothing left to feel. She presses a cloth bag into my hands a bag within which I will later find dried dates and loose pumpkin seeds, random coins from summer holidays past, soft banknotes trapped in rubber bands, and the solid gold necklace and bangles she wore when she married Baba all those years ago. But then and there, in the darkness before another dawn, with the gin whispering in the corner, I hear the slight clinks of metal on metal and shake my head. Khudi! A harsh whisper, a command to take these final things she has to give. Is it the last word I'll ever hear from her? She says nothing else, and her eyes have said nothing for weeks. Does she understand my need to leave? Is the bag a sign of approval or a heavy white flag of surrender? Mama is a flower, and one by one, she is losing her petals. Do you want to say anything about why you chose that? Yeah, you know, I think it's, um, it just, it speaks to, I don't know how to, how to phrase it. It's, it's like I wanted to portray the sense of, of quiet in the house, the sense of silence in the house after this 
this ultimate tragedy, which I don't want to give too much away about it, but this ultimate thing that's happened, which is what uh, causes the protagonist to leave. Um, and I, I wanted it to be more than her just slipping away uh, in the quiet of night or, or more than her just leaving during the afternoon and never coming back. I wanted there to be uh, some goodbye or sense of goodbye at least with with her family where do you write usually at, at my computer pre-covid times i would find a, a coffee shop to sit in uh, but since the pandemic started uh, it's just you know at my desk in my apartment at my laptop sometimes if the words aren't coming or if it's not flowing i might switch and write longhand because sometimes i feel like Switching up the medium can help. Um, but yeah, it's, it's usually just me at my desk. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, I find walking to be very beneficial. So I'll get out and walk. Usually if I can find a body of water, I like, I like being by a river or a canal or uh, back home in Kuwait, I would go and walk along the coast but walking for me is very helpful and it it helps me to think about my characters think about their struggles think about you know the larger story uh, the context of it um you know walking is is pretty much the best remedy for for writer's block in my opinion (laughs) who do you show your work to first to get feedback i usually go through at least two or three rounds of editing on my own before I let anyone see it. And then, you know, back before I was published, I had, you know, writer friends or reader friends back in Kuwait who would look at it and give me their feedback. But nowadays it's my agent, my editor, you know, and and that process is always interesting because um, they come at it in a different way. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm writing as a bilingual Arab and and my novels tend to take place in or from that position. And so it's always interesting to have the feedback from someone outside of those communities and outside of those contexts and to see what they read into it or what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what maybe needs a little bit more explanation. Uh, So that process is always interesting to me. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is hard, you know, and uh, I was I was looking for an agent for two years before I found mine. And more often than not, it was just crickets. You know, you would send out your pitches and you would just get nothing in return. Um, And I got passes on on my novels before they were picked up. And I've had short stories rejected and it's hard, you know, and it's hard not to take it personally, even though we're all told. And it is true that you shouldn't take it personally. It isn't personal. Uh, but, you, you know, you can't help but feel dinged by it when it happens. And so for me, you know, the remedy is just to, to put it away maybe for a day or two, go for a walk, get some perspective, uh, read, you know, read something else. And, and, you know, you eventually get back into it. And, and rejection is just, it's part and parcel of the whole, the whole thing. There's no way to avoid it. So 
you just have to be be okay with that. What is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word. <laughs> I was thinking about this. Um, I don't really have one. I mean, in the context of, of the novel, I have a least favorite word. So I don't know. Will you take that? <laughs> yes. Um, so so my, my protagonist rails against this word humanize. Uh, and humanize is a word that I detest and that I find quite abhorrent. And, you know, if you think about when do we usually hear this word, it's usually in connection to a documentary or a film or a book that does such a great job of humanizing someone, you know, humanizing refugees or humanizing this or that class of people. And every time I hear that word, I just shudder because there's an implicit and tacit concession in the word. You're conceding the argument that some people are not people already and that this label of human is is a gift that you can bestow upon them by virtue of some film or documentary or art form. Uh, and there's something, I think, quite abhorrent in that process and in the power imbalance that is implicit in that idea that that someone is able to give that label to a class of people who were already people you know and they did not need um, some portrayal or some representation in order for them to be classified as humans so that is probably my least favorite word and it's a word that the protagonist rails against at at one point in the novel Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Layla Alomar, author of the novel Silence is a Sense. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Lila Abuela. We discussed her novel, The Kindness of Enemies, which focused on the story of a 19th century imam, Shamil the 19th century Muslim leader who led the anti-Russian resistance in the Caucasian War. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it to the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Ethan Rutherford. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.